Imagine a world where you knew that you mattered and you belonged. The people cared about you because we were so darn good at listening to one another, no matter how different we are. That is what Sidewalk Talk is doing by putting listeners on sidewalks all over the world so that we can practice the art of connecting. Join me, founder and director Tracy Rubel, as I interview experts on the fine art of human connection and interview some of our volunteers who've been listening on the sidewalk and even some of the folks that we've listened to. And if you want to volunteer, consider joining us at sidewalk-talk.org. All right, so I have a confession. I hope that Dr. Kristen Moody is a lifelong friend because I had so much fun, so much heart talking to Kristen. I feel like what she has in common with Sidewalk Talk is she's like street level, right? Like what got her to go back and get her PhD in education was that she'd been working with teens and students. And you'll hear this from Michael McKnight, who we'll also have on the podcast later. Uh, She's an empathy scholar, educator, and researcher who uses the science behind empathy, but she teaches us some science that I've never heard from anybody else that studies empathy. So you got to listen to it because it'll get you motivated to get out there on the sidewalk or to listen to difficult people also. She's really, same mission. She wants to help people connect. She really does help individuals and organizations construct cultures of empathy that honors, ready for this? This is what we have in common too, authentic diversity. So this enables people to exceed their goals, realize their visions, and sustain thriving communities and workplaces. So you ready to have your heart set ablaze? Dr. Kristen Moody. Kristen Moody, I am so already enriched just with our interaction before going live. So I'm, I feel really like I'm bringing a treasure to all our listeners and and so excited to learn, learn from you all these years of research and thinking that you've done about empathy. But I want to know about you. Like how, how does one or how did you even get on this journey of teaching people and researching empathy in all the places that you do? Well, first of all, thank you so much for the opportunity to come share my story and be a part of um, this work that you're doing. It's so powerful. And all the people that are doing this work feels so important. So I'm really excited to be a part of your tribe. Thank you. Um, I think that I probably came to it the way that everybody in your tribe did, which is you get a sense that um, you have a connection to people and you realize that you are as moved by hearing other people's stories as you are by telling your own. And so for me, I was a public high school teacher um, for a long time. I started off teaching in New York City public schools and then in Los Angeles um, schools. And teaching was awesome. I taught high school English and I taught uh, peer counseling and did a lot with conflict resolution. So I learned a lot of really cool skills and strategies and I loved the content. 
But what I really loved was learning from kids. Um, and I still love those students and still keep in touch with them. I think the last students that I had as a high school teacher graduated in 2006. It's been a long time. Um, they're full grown people with fully formed adult lives. Um, and I talk to them, some of them like weekly, literally. Um, and I learned so much from them. And so I think that that was where I started to realize that I am deeply called to learn from others. And that evolved into an understanding of what empathy is, which I think is learning from and being allowed to be shaped by others in a way that we have a biology for and we have um, a physiology for that I ended up then getting, you know, enormous student loan debt to study really intentionally. <laughs> oh, I hear you on that. Well, <laughs> your face just just got so so I we're recording this and I'm I'm seeing Kristen as we're talking, but your face just got so lit up when you were talking about your students. And yeah. you know, I could just see how connected you feel still to, to them. Um and you know, you just said something that really made me come alive. You said empathy is about learning and being changed. And a lot of empathy scholars don't don't use those words. So I want to understand more because I'm, I'm completely resonant. I realized maybe you just made something click in me because learning is my number one core value. So maybe that's why I'm so into empathy, right? What, how, how are we changed? How do we learn? Say more about this. So I think the thing about empathy that's been interesting to me is there are lots of different ways that it's defined, which is why I kind of think it gets a bad rap. So I teach empathy in a number of different contexts. I teach for a college here in Atlanta where I teach a lot of undergraduate students who are between the ages of 18 and 21. It's a, it's a men's college. So there are some women who sometimes enroll, but it's, you know, it's predominantly men. They take my class. Um, Usually it's because they can get three credits pretty quickly. Um, they're coming into the class for a lot of different reasons, but usually not because they think of themselves as um, empathy first, right? Um, and if they have a de definition of empathy, it's usually not the definition that they walk away from the class with, I don't think. Um, I teach for um, a coaching school. Uh, it's called the Mindfulness Coaching School. So everyone who I end up having in those classes usually walks in with a pretty predefined definition of what empathy is. And it's usually something that's very contrary to the definition that we talk about. So to your point, Tracy, there are gajillions of definitions of empathy, and they're all pretty contrary. And most of them are um, in, in complete, they totally go against the way that our physiology works, right? And so the definitions that I love, and, and Brene Brown is somebody who I, I, there's some of her research and some of what she does around how authentic she is that I really enjoy, but I wouldn't say I'm a complete disciple. Um, so to be clear, you know, where I fall, I'm, I'm not a devout fan, but I love what she's done. And I love the fact that she's brought scholarship in an authentic way to a much wider audience. 
she did bring me to nursing scholarship and empathy where I think the best definitions of empathy lie. And so the definition of empathy that I most often work from has sort of evolved from a mix of the social sciences and the medical sciences, because those are the places, those are the places that have invested the most research into understanding how empathy works in our neurology against outcomes. Where does empathy actually yield benefits um, that should inform a true codified definition that we can work from. And that says that empathy is a focused attention on another, an acceptance of that person's truth without judgment, an accurate interpretation of that person's emotional state, and then a, and then a response to that person's state with parity, an, an appropriate response to that person's state. And there's a couple of sort of contextual qualifiers to that definition that I think are important. The biggest one to me is always that, that number two, which is accepting the truth without judgment, which is the one that I think when we talk about like cognitive empathy, um, that doesn't say anything about withholding judgment, which I think is, the, is a really important part. When we talk a lot about like um, social justice and racial equity in this country, a lot of the times we, we don't accept other people's truth and we certainly don't do it without judgment. Um, so we really lack empathy or um, there's, there's a power dynamic where we, we have sympathy where we're still constantly thinking about like, now what am I supposed to do about it? Like that thing at the end, like I still hold myself in a place of power. Empathy really is just about sitting in holding space with someone and being able to share a feeling. And when you can root yourself in a definition like that, it really changes, I think, everything, but it allows you to, it's hard, but we have physiology for it. And then from there, you can say, okay, well, what's the neurobiology doing? What's our physiology doing? What are the outcomes that you can get from that? So then you look at the nursing research, which shows all the, the, the actual outcomes that you have as a result of doing that in the medical field. You look at um, what's happening in our body when you do that and all the affective synchronization, the, the, the facial mimicry, the, the um, adrenal system mimicry and all the pleasure hormones that are released when we have that kind of affective synchronization. It doesn't require me to do anything that usually ends up turning into some sort of power struggle, which cancels all that stuff out. So I think having a true definition like that sort of eliminates all the confusion and sort of mitigates all of the, the things that challenge the idea of empathy when people say, oh, well, I'm really empathic, but it's so exhausting. Well, if you have true empathy, it doesn't have to be exhausting because it's a choice, right? If you have, you know, people say, oh, empathy is really problematic because then you're running around trying to fix everybody's problems. Well, if you have true empathy, that's not true because you're operating on an equal playing field, right? So it sort of alleviates all of those challenges. And I'm gonna feel really smart after talking to you because these are all the things I felt and known, but you're now like backing up the stuff that I felt and known with research. So I only learned- Student loan debt, yeah. Thank mm -hmm. you. Should I send you a check in contribution for your student <laughs> loan debt? <laughs> Just mail it straight to the University of Southern California. <laughs> You you are you also teach in their program now, yeah, or adjunct faculty. I, I have I have taught for them a few times before. I'm not currently. Mm -hmm. 
Well, I want to just reflect kind of some of the pieces because I thought it was really compelling. And I think what I heard you say is that when we focus our attention in this very uh, non-judgmental way where we're sort of uh, tuning to someone's emotional state and having an appropriate response, that it actually elevates our own well-being as the empathizer. And when it doesn't elevate our well-being is when we're the sympathizer who feels responsible for making that person feel differently than they currently do, or that we were sort of strong-armed into listening some, to someone when we're not quite ready to be offering ourselves in that way. But I'd love to learn more about the physiology because my experience, I told you before we went live that I have a problem with anxiety. Mm -hmm. Empathy is the greatest solution to my anxiety. And people go, oh, you mean you need it from other people? I'm like, no. When I listen to other people, I'm no longer anxious. But I have to do it in the very way that you just described. I have to be, pay attention. I have to be super embodied and present. I have to be so surrendered to, to not judging this person. Like, yeah, just whatever. Who are you? Where do you come from? And I want to understand more, like, what is the physiology behind all this? Tell me more. So there's a couple different physiological processes that contribute to a full empathetic response, right? And one of those um, one of those components is emotional contagion. And I think it's important to note because it contributes to empathy, but it's a, it's it can be isolated as a separate phenomenon. I'm not going to remember her name, but there's a researcher who talks about um, and I think she's credited with having um, discovered this sort of phenomenon. She talks about having consistently met with um, a, a researcher in her field. He may have been a superior. And no matter what they talked about, she would always walk away feeling like depleted and her energy was sapped. And even if they were having positive meanings, she would just be feel heavy afterwards. <laughs> and so she wanted to find out well, what was going on, right? And she is credited and she did studies into this, this idea of emotional contagion, this idea of catching a feeling. And she isolates some of the ways that we do catch feelings from other people. And this is, and, and I think about like, if I haven't had enough sleep, how much more susceptible I am to inheriting, you know, bad moods from the checkout clerk in the grocery line. Or if, if I'm feeling particularly like, run down or like I've taken an ego hit, how much more likely I am to just inherit, you know, like if my kids had a rough day, how, how quick it is I am to inherit that feeling, to catch that feeling. That's emotional contagion. And what happens is because of the physiology we have that allows us to glean the feelings of other people we are mimicking those feelings and in, in that enables our brain to be able to, to interpret what other people are feeling. So as social animals, we can say, is, is, is this safe or is this dangerous, right? But when we aren't at our best, our, our unwilling sort of in, inheritance of those feelings happens more often. So some people are just in a state of running around catching, catching these feelings, right? Which is really different from empathy, 
which is where I'm making an intentional decision to sit down and focus on you, which is what you're describing, Tracy. So you're saying, I want to sit down and intentionally focus on someone and really hear their story and withhold judgment and recognize their truth and get caught up in it. And the reason that it sounds like you have a really positive response to that experience versus, you know, walking around catching feelings, which isn't necessarily a good feeling, is because when our physiology engages in connecting with someone, we get a release of chemicals. And I'm not a, I'm not a neuroscience, I'm not a scientist, right? but we, we get a release of, of chemicals like oxytocin. We have this, this connection, this effective AFF effective synchronization that, that, that is positive. And the prefrontal medial cortex in our brain, which is the, the part of our brain that, that has somatic markers. It's the part of our brain that if you go on a roller coaster, it's the part of your brain that goes, ooh, that was fun. I should do that again in the future. I'm going to attach an emotional memory to, to that, that I'm going to attach an emotional experience to that memory, or that was terrible. I'm going to attach an emotional experience to that memory, right? That part of your brain says, Ooh, this connection was pleasurable. I want to do this again. And it likes it when we connect with other humans because we're social animals. So when we empathetically connect with each other, not catch a feeling, not inherit the grocery clerk's sad mood, but when you and I connect, my muscles and my face are going to, on a subconscious, totally um, unintentional level, start to mimic the muscles of your face. And that's going to send my brain messages to tell me what you're feeling. In fact, there are studies that show that people who have had Botox and other sort of things to change the way that their facial muscles work are less unhappy <laughs> because they are less likely to reproduce the angry and the sad faces because they can't make the angry faces that you would make. And I do a, um, an experiment in training where we try to make an angry face and then try to figure out what emotions people in pictures are making who are smiling. And you can't make an angry face and look at someone who's happy and really be able to write it down. Your brain can't frown, process your frown and look at someone's happy face and figure it out. Sorry, I froze there for a second. So you have to, your, your face mimics, your facial muscles mimic on a subconscious level the facial muscles you execute in small ways. Your body, when you totally align, your body will start to mimic, which is why we tell people when they wanna actively listen, I'm sure you do this in, in therapeutic sessions, you want to mirror body language, right? We do that subconsciously when we're really engaged with someone, we lean forward, we, we sort of match an open posture, right? Um, in our brains, there are all sorts of uh, different parts attached to emotional and intellectual thought that are connecting in ways that, um, are that are lighting up in the places that 
would if we were doing the thing we hear the person talking about. So if you're telling me about an experience riding a roller coaster, in my brain, it would be lighting up where I would be riding a roller coaster. So I'm experiencing all these things sort of vicariously through your telling. But all of that happens when I make the choice, that number one step in the empathy, to really focus. So I'm kind of getting lost in your experience. And that's a pleasurable thing for us as social animals. You just cleared something up for me with what you're saying too, because I remember I had a, a conversation with Stan Tatkin from UCLA, who's, I, you know, I'm a couples therapist, so I love talking to other couples researchers. But he was very concerned that we were gonna catch people's feelings on the sidewalk. He was, oh, you better do debriefs and you're gonna be really tired. And I'm like, gosh, so funny, because it's just not my experience. Like, I feel more tired from the, buses and cars going by and the honking horns than the listening to people, even when it's a pretty intense story. Um, in fact, I usually feel the opposite. I feel quite alive. I feel energized. I feel open-hearted and hopeful about the world, even if somebody told me they were really depressed because of the way that, you know, I was, I think what you're saying is A, probably I'd gotten some good sleep that night. Probably I'd eaten. I noticed I wasn't a good listener when I sit out in a cold. I'm a terrible listener when I'm freezing on that sidewalk. So I'm like, oof, whenever I'm, so now we bring blankets and one woman always brings hand warmers and puts them in her pocket because it gets cold in San Francisco. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you cleared that up for me. And I think that, you know what, you just inspired me as a therapist because sometimes I cannot do a good job taking care of myself. Um, and what you're really acknowledging or, or amplifying in me is when we are taking care of our physiology, and correct me if I'm wrong, we increase our capacity to be intentionally empathic. Yes? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, it, and, it, and it's a cycle, right? And when we connect with people and empathize, we also improve our physiology. And so I think that that's the other thing that's really important about this last year of the pandemic, when so many people are only able to connect. I just saw some phenomenal research that's coming out about how people connect on Zoom. And it talks about how much heavier the cognitive load is on virtual platforms. We have to strain so much harder to be able to interpret facial cues um, in the Zoom platform, especially if it's more than just two of us, right? The, the actual proportion of faces, faces as we see them on the Zoom platform makes it trickier for our, our brain to interpret because this is all virtual. Um, it, it's just happening. The cognitive load is heavier. And so doing that emotional deciphering and, and all of that in a virtual setting, even when we see faces, is harder. So it's, it's more exhausting to empathize in a virtual platform, even when you can see faces. It's almost in some ways, and there's, um, there are people who advocate for being able to do some of that uh, remote connection with just voice, because then you can really hunker down into vocal intonation without the distraction of, of the, the face that's the wrong proportion and can't see the pupils and the synchronicity isn't happening in exactly the right way, because you can really hunker down on voice. Text-based communication, which nobody needs me to say it, is a you know, steaming hot mess um, because the we are reinforced by and rewarded by 
saying the smartest thing and getting the clicks and, and making connections is really, really difficult in that way. So we spend a lot more time trying to get um, rewarded by things that drive divisiveness and disconnection rather than the things that actually connect us because we, we don't get any cues in that space. So for the last year or more, most people have been in a space where they haven't really been able to do any sort of empathizing, which is hard on our physiology. It really is. I, I just am appreciating so much. I think that there are things that have been buzzwords for me, but now you're really helping me understand kind of the, the science behind it a little more and getting me really excited. I feel excited listening to you. That there is, there really is, I, I don't know, I just am getting it on another level that, okay, number one, when we're on a digital platform, we have to work so much harder and potentially not even receive the physiological benefits. Cause what if all the working harder cancels out the feeling good, you know, sometimes it feels that way for me in, in big group settings. Um, two, that, that we've, there's been so much research on loneliness and how loneliness makes us die younger, but now I'm really getting it. I'm like, Oh, right. Because it's not that it makes it, we were focusing on how it makes us die younger. Nobody's talking about, no, but it actually makes us feel better. <laughs> I mean, I, what I'm hearing is if these empathic interactions regulate us, they help our mood. I don't know why I'm getting it now and I didn't get it before, but I'm just getting it now in a way that I didn't get it before. Maybe because you're just, you just say it in a way that I can hear it, but get it. I think I've, I think I've spent a lot of time thinking about how these dots are connected because it matters to me. I also think that, um, and to be honest, Tracy, and I think this is something that's really important too. I'm not, there are certain people it's really easy for me to empathically connect with. It's really, it's really easy for me to empathetically connect with students. So as I continue to teach, I feel like I can drop everything with them. Um, connecting with students, I love teaching. It's, it's, it's a lot of fun. I love students. I just love where their heads are. It's fantastic. My family will tell you that, that at home, it takes a lot more work for me, right? And so I think that's the other thing that I love about empathy is that um, I'm an incredibly flawed person. Um, I am, mindfulness is one of the strategies that uh, is phenomenal for empathy. And I ended up doing mindfulness as a strategy because it really helps empathy a lot. Um, all the research shows how critical it is to reset. It, 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 mindfulness shrinks your amygdala. If you, can you know, if you can reduce the sympathetic nervous system responses, you're better able to empathize because you need to be in a parasympathetic nervous state to be able to engage with somebody else. If you've got that fight or flight going, you can't think about anybody else, right? And so um, all the biases that we have and all the reactivity that we have prevents us from really being able to focus on other people. So mindfulness is like, right, it's the key to everything. It's so annoying, but it really is. And, you know, so I'm an amateur boxer, you know, at mindfulness, I just want to punch people, right? There's something very contradictory to all of this, like, let's just love each other. Let's go meditate. I was like, so I think the other part of this that's really um, powerful for me is that empathy can be grown. Empathy can be practiced the way that 
I can go to the gym and, and work on, on reps to make my biceps bigger. I can make a decision to flip the switch at any time and really listen to somebody and practice. And I can also make the decision at any time to turn it off and move through my life just focused on me. And that doesn't mean that I'm advocating for people to, to put blinders on, but that also means that sometimes you have to just go inward and be able to put blinders on so that you can sit down in the right situations and totally be open-hearted and listen to people without judgment at the times that it really matters. I've been astounded, you know, very US centric, but I've been astounded over the course of this summer in the wake of George Floyd's murder at how many people in this country were shocked by um, the experiences of Black Americans when it's a story and a narrative and a history that we've had in this country that's not new. Um, and so this, this part of accepting people's truth and accepting it without judgment feels like something that we have to be able to do at times that it really matters. So I think it makes sense to be able to say there are times you can turn it off so that when it really matters, you can turn it on. Be able to listen when it really matters and be able to listen without judgment when it really matters and, and turn it off when you don't have to. <laughs> so beautiful. I mean, I'm almost hearing you say, look, train yourself, mm -hmm. train yourself and use it when it matters. You know, you don't, you're not saying go be flooded all the time, go, you know, don't do any work because you've got to be, you know, focused on empathizing. I hear you saying, no, no, but I hear a call to action in what you're saying. Like I hear you saying, devote some time to cultivating yourself in this way and then choose wisely where you put that effort. And that one of those places is hearing the stories of people who have been wronged in all the different ways that we can right those wrongs in the case of racism in America or in the case of economic injustice or you know all these different places yeah i'm feeling really inspired um, now i'm i got to i'm going to be proud about something because i am a curmudgeonly meditator as well <laughs> <laughs> and so i started i told you that i'm having this like conflict with social media right now so I started meditating on Instagram and that's the only way I do my marketing. I just meditate. And I did it because two of my friends go check to see that I did it. So I use social media in a really warped way where I'm like, I'm not going to use it to put something out there to steal someone's attention. I'm going to use it to be a little rebellious and I'm not going to like, I'm just going to be me. I might say a little bit at the front end and then I just sit there for 30 minutes and meditate. And it's I'm on day 93 now. Congratulations. That's phenomenal. Thank you. I wanted that. Congrats. I that's like the longest I've ever meditated in a row in my entire life. What an incredible way to use social media as like an accountability partner. That's phenomenal. That's really it. innovative. That's exactly it. I'm using that's it as fantastic. an accountability partner. Good for you. I think that's amazing. It's fun. I'm gonna go like I'm gonna go like your next meditation. That rules. <laughs> Um, yeah, and there's now, a, there's like a core group of about 15 of us now that they, we kind of, they use it as their accountability too. So I'm not trying to become a social media star doing this. It's for me, you know? It's so good for you. You look at the functional MRIs of brains before and after, it totally changes your brain. 
it, it, it makes your front, the, the new brain, the front brain, it makes it, it makes it bigger. It shrinks your amygdala. It makes you, it gives you greater emotional regulation. It better positions you to, to empathize. I mean, the research around what it does for your brain is absolutely, I mean, it, you can't mess with it. Well, since you know this so much about the brain, I feel my brain is weird after using, after scrolling on social media. Like my brain feels weird. I say this to my husband. I'm like, it feels weird. Do you know anything about this? Like, I just feel like this. Well, I mean, we know, we know that, we know that the way that everything about technology and social media is, is designed, is designed to, to manipulate our feelings and our actions, right? And so it is a tiny little box of marketing tools. So, you know, I do a lot of conversations ab about bias and um, I don't want to pick on the pistachio people, but it's the example I always give. There's a, there's a pistachio, um, there's a pistachio ad and it's a box and the pistachios are in the box. It's like in a display in the stores. And on one side it says, you know, it's got a big buff guy and it says, you know, pistachios, the fit nut. And on the other side, it's got this tiny lady in like, you know, workout clothes. And it says, you know, pistachios, the skinny nut. Um, and I just think about um, that message and how from the time, you know, my kids, uh, I have two children and as they were growing up as emergent readers, they read everything. They read, you know, the curse words spray painted on the walls. They read the graffiti, they read whatever, they read those things. And then bloop, those things got like planted in their brains and, you know, um, gender norms being what they are and all sorts of messaging being what it is. My kids each took something from that message, like all the other messages that are out there. And we get all those messages and they create all, all our biases that, that we don't even know that we have, right? Social media is all of that just in a tiny little box being like directed at you in ways that have been, people have spent gajillions of dollars to, to you know, make you scroll more. So I feel like it's just a tiny little manipulation box. I mean, it's really, you know, lovely to scroll through babies and dinners and interesting art. And I mean, it's, it's a lovely diversion, but it's also designed to manipulate you. So I feel like that's the, that's the tension that we all feel and yeah. have to navigate. Yeah, no, I appreciate, appreciate that. And I think that, yeah, I mean, for us to just go on our own research, right, and investigate, how do I feel after I use social media? Do I feel more empathic or do I feel less empathic? And I don't know that we need a scientist to tell us. I think I can feel it pretty concretely and pretty immediately. I'm like, ooh, I don't feel more empathic. <laughs> I feel more worked up. I feel craving for talking to, uh, talking to he's a compassion researcher in Australia. And he said, you know, oh no, actually you would really like him. He, he actually is a teacher in the New Jersey. He works with at-risk youth. And he was saying, once we start using social media, even when the phone isn't there, he said, you know, we, you know, he goes, you know, the, the research shows that we are still craving the phone, but imagine how that impacts our relationships. So we're sitting there, but we're really craving the phone. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, it's so sad. Craving the phone more than connection. It's interesting because... I, I've, 
heard from people who talk about rejecting social media altogether, which I think is an interesting premise. And then there's, you know, the TED talk from Megan Phelps Roper on um, how she was um, engaged to leave the Westboro Baptist Church, which is through um, interactions that began on Twitter. Twitter. Uh, And so it's interesting because, you know, I think if you look at her story, it was the personal interactions that followed, but those interactions began on Twitter. So I always think of her as the sort of um, example of how connections can begin. And certainly lots of relationships begin via that modality. They blossom in a different space. (laughs) It's true. I've met two new friends this year through social media, and we have taken it offline. We actually meet every two, every second Wednesday, we get together a small group of us women that met each other on social media. It's amazing. You know? Okay, so we're nearing the end of time, and I wanted to just ask you one more question. You know, with all the research that you've done, with all this time you spend with kids and in educational institutions, if you had a big grand vision for the world, and I get that, I don't, you know, you don't strike me as this guru type, but so think of it as a wish, but how would you hope that the world changes in the direction of empathy in the, in the coming years? What would you hope to see more of at, in schools and workplaces um, that would really excite you? People believing each other. <clears throat> it's. I feel like that sounds so silly. Um, I think there's something to be said for, there's something to be said for just the idea of people being able to say how they feel or what they've experienced and for them to be believed and for that to not be a catastrophe. And and I don't, and I don't, this isn't like a, this isn't even, a, this isn't like a me too reference or th- this is just very, very much when um, I do a lot of work in organizational culture. And it's funny because people will invest significant amounts of money in consultants or external support to repair their culture. And you do surveys and you do focus groups and the staff comes back and they say, you know, we just don't feel like we're trusted or what we really need is um, we need a little bit of flexibility on our work hours or, you know, if, if we could just work from home a little bit, right. You know, they'll just, they'll just say, and then, you know, the, the leadership will come back and be like, you know, they always say that, but that's, you know, that, that that's not really going to fix the issue. Yeah. Or, you know, I'll work in schools and, and we'll talk, we'll be talking about, um, race and equity and we'll, we'll have focus groups with the kids and the kids will say, this is a situation that's going on. And you go back and you talk to the leadership and they say, oh, kids always say that. You know, I, I mean, these are high school kids, you know. I think there's just something about the idea of believing people at their, accepting their truth without judgment, um, recognizing that their experience is different from yours or recognizing that the lens through which they're experiencing something makes it feel really different from yours and that that's okay. And it does, and what that means about how we act on it or what that, like all those steps, like don't even get there, just accept that people have different experiences 
And the fact that I got COVID and was fine, or I got COVID and was much sicker than you, or I didn't get COVID has nothing to do with me being healthier than you, or me believing in it more than you, or like, you don't have to figure out how my COVID experience has something to do with our beliefs being different, our eating habits being different. Like maybe I just got it and I had a different experience and it's got nothing to do with you. (laughs) She really loved that. It's really, really super profound to believe each other. Yeah, thank you for, thank you for that one. I I think you went right with your heart and yeah, that was great. So just before we move into our last question, can we tell folks how to find you? Where are the different places that they can find more out about you, Kristen? This is the part I'm terrible at, Tracy. You're not good at tooting your horn? I'm good at tooting horns. (laughs) <laughs> this is a growth area for me. I have a website. Um, it is empathyatwork.net. Um, I have grossly underdeveloped social media that I never post on. Well, One no, day we I'll get We won't give those, but that you can, they can yeah. find you on LinkedIn. You're on LinkedIn. You can find enough. me on LinkedIn. So we'll yeah, sure I have put no your LinkedIn link in the comments. I have, I have no idea what my LinkedIn is. We'll, we'll have it all. Our, our, we, we write a yeah, fancy like show that. notes and you, you can go yeah. and find I have Kristen. a website. I always find the people that don't have the big social media stuff are usually the ones that are really good at what they do. <laughs> no, I have to, I have, I'm doing a, I'm a, a regional TED ed, uh, TEDx talk in a week or two. And they said, well, give us all your social media stuff. And I was like, I don't have any of that. <laughs> I don't know how to. So I'm going to, one day I'll have those things, but I have a website. I have an email address. You have a beautiful website. <laughs> Your website's beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> this was lovely. And ho- hopefully a book one day. It's on the list of things to do. I have, you know, I wrote a, a lovely dissertation that took me three years oh, that you're done writing for a while. tons of information <laughs> in it that, that should, that should be shared beyond, um, you know, so one day, one day. No pressure. No pressure. I, I'm, I'm told <laughs> that writing a book is like birthing a child. You've got to really want to be pregnant with it for 10 whole months. <laughs> and then you really got to want to raise it after. I'm like, oh, that's a really good metaphor. <laughs> so we have this fun ritual for how we um, complete our conversation, which is that I get out of the way and invite you to speak directly to all these thousands of listeners that have been sitting on sidewalks around the world for six years. And you can offer words of wisdom. You can offer them a wish. There's, you know, I think someone wants to sing a song. You really, you can do whatever you want to do. No pressure. (laughs) That only happened one time. (laughs) Um, I have a favorite quote. Can I share a favorite quote? I have a favorite quote. Um, it's from um, a writer and scholar named Bell Hooks, and I would love to, to share this with everybody. She says, dominator culture has tried to keep us all afraid to make us choose safety instead of risk, sameness instead of diversity. Moving through that fear, finding out what connects us, reveling in our differences. This is the process that brings us closer, that gives us a world of shared values and of meaningful community. Brava. I love Bell Hooks. Is that from All About Love or one of her other? It's from uh, the teaching 
teaching oh, book. You're teaching, yeah. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Ah, I just want to come give you a big hug. I can tell I you have really groovy tattoos. I only have one, but I've been thinking about getting another. So mm. I just have one. It's just, it's all just over. one big well, I have mm. a brother that has oh I love that. She has um love more on the insides of her fingers. Mm-hmm. Um, my brother has an entire um, body of tattoos and he always tells me where it hurts the most. <laughs> <laughs> they all hurt the most after you hit a certain age. <laughs> all right. This was so fun. Thank you for being with us, Kristen. Thank you. And thank you to your beautiful tribe for the work you do. Making people feel heard is, I think, some of the most most critical work that's out there right now. So thank yeah. you for well, the love I that you share. We're the beneficiaries for sure. We're sure, sure. Mm-hmm. All right. Be well. And um, guys, please look Kristen up in the show notes and follow her. And uh, yeah, you'll be inspired for sure. Thank you for being here and listening to this episode of the Sidewalk Talk podcast. If you like what you heard, tell your friends, tell your family, like and comment on the podcast publisher that you're listening from and subscribe. This will help us get the word out about changing our culture to one of connection.